Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. You want to kill me? Now you want to feed me? The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 208, My Brother's Keeper, is sponsored by Amy's Spaghetti. It'll cut you in half. Pete, here we are, firmly ensconced in the second half of Punisher, continuing to podcast Star Trek Discovery. Did one just yesterday for episode 203. Can't believe we only have a handful of episodes of Punisher left, but we are continuing to race through this epic season. It's been really fun to watch, but I'm looking forward to it ratcheting up here, particularly as this episode ended. But Matt, take us to the recap. The episode opens with Billy overwhelmed at the revelation that Frank Castle is the Punisher. Frank's car continues to dodge the world's worst sniper, who gets taken out by Curtis. Meanwhile, Billy has the car stopped as he loads up a very serious machine gun. It fires at Frank's car, stopping it. Billy howls and continues to fire as the NYPD arrives. He shoots at them, too. There's a whole lot of shooting with no connections, even as car 2 from the robbery arrives. The credits show the episode is written by Bruce Marshall Romans and directed by Michael Offer. Frank is on the run, barreling through Brooklynites as Mahoney gives chase. The sergeant corners him in an alley. Mahoney has Frank on his knees, but Curtis arrives with his AR-10, offering a warning shot. Frank apologizes and Mahoney gets downed by a punch. They cool things Riverside with Kurt noting that they'll be found soon. Frank processes the fact that Billy doesn't remember the recent past. Later, Curtis is alone in the car, seeing that girlfriend Delia has given up on him. He sees police cars heading to the warehouse. Mahoney and the police see bodies, including that of Anton, the inside man. Frank ducks back into the car and wants them to drive off. Curtis can't. He could have saved Anton if he took the shot on Billy. All of this business is driving both Curtis and Frank down. At the gang's hideout, they're readying to split the take and arguing about the particulars. Billy shoots two of them. Everyone else then toes the line. He leaves, and at Dr. Dumont's well-appointed apartment, there's an intense knocking at the door. It's a despondent Billy. He pleads to be let in and is less interested in the bag of money than the fact that Frank wears the skull. His shock and pain is palpable. He doesn't remember, and Dumont reminds him of how far his recovery has come, that he's touched his pain, and it all gets better now. She sleeps and awakes to Billy sitting over her. He says she's played him, that keeping Frank's secret was to control him. She tries to calm him by having him count five blue things. He smashes one of them, then another. He holds her against the window, choking her. She asks if it's so scary that she might love him, that she thinks he can change, that there's a better him. He goes for a walk to meet the remainder of the gang, letting them split it up without him. It's just scraps for the taking. If they think they deserve more, he wants to build a brotherhood. At Amy's hideaway, she's practicing loading her sawed-off shotgun. She's also bored. Frank and Curtis show up, Frank raging on her for not protecting the place better. Frank says she needs to know she could wind up dead. He reloads and is off to kill Billy, leaving Amy crying. He goes to see Jake to beat him into giving more information on Billy. Is Frank acting just like Billy of old? Frank takes a walk, covering up his skull vest. Later, she's alone in the trailer. 
Curtis swings by and Amy takes a shot at him, missing. They were never properly introduced. Would he like some food? She boils a good spaghetti. Curtis shares his past with Frank. At Madani's apartment, Mahoney arrives to update her on the situation. They both acknowledge that they are currently working off the radar of DHS and the NYPD. She reminds him that Castle's got a code. Mahoney doesn't think so. Feds make Mahoney sick. She used to believe in the system. Now she sees Frank Castle as delivering some kind of justice. Mahoney tells her to pick a side. She ends up visiting Curtis in Amy's trailer. Madani mentions having met Pilgrim, albeit with no evidence to arrest him. She floats a new plan. Give Mahoney Billy, and maybe all is square. Amy pours them all drinks, while intercut, Frank is at the cemetery. They reflect on how Frank Castle has changed all their lives. Will Madani give him up? Meanwhile, Frank sits the graves of his dead family. Pete, let's talk villains, as we oftentimes do. Let's start with Billy. Pete, just when we thought he couldn't get any worse, now he's taken out guys on his own robbery squad. For me, his scene of the episode was begging Dr. Dumont to be let into her apartment. And this smacks of every incel wannabe victim in our society. Oh, save me from the bad people not owning up to what he's done wrong himself. So much wrong. And not to take an overly political reading of things, but this notion that he he doesn't have the evidence to understand why he's the bad guy. And instead of saying, I know I've had a traumatic brain injury, therefore uh, I need to get more information on what my missing memories are. No, it's here's my experience, here's my perspective, here's my understanding. Hey, whatever that teensy-weensy missing piece is, I don't care. Frank Castle's the villain. Uh, you're the villain for not telling me things. You're the villain for not making me the, the hero of my own story constantly. And we, we see it all continuing to crash down around Billy in this episode. This guy opens up on the street. Granted, Castle was chasing him, prepared to kill him, although... Frank says in his own words, he froze. Um, But whereas Frank owns up to things and is, you know, the, the rough hero we need, Billy is the villain we get. And, uh, you know, between his, uh, you know, crying on the shoulder of Krista Dumont and then later terrorizing her. um, And I refuse to blame her for that um she thinks she can change him and it's just not happening it certainly is admirable that she wants to change him i think as we have gotten to know her a bit better in the last couple episodes and to understand her pain and understand her perspective um i think and this is just completely from the point of view of a layperson when it comes to mental health and therapy and things of that sort. But I think that she supposes that her trauma makes her uniquely, uniquely qualified, particularly compared to other therapists when it comes to understanding Billy and his pain and his trauma, all of which can be true. But this is also an episode where I felt like she 
she was written in a way where she was minimized even more, where she was, it kind of was the stereotypical guy yells at woman, woman cowers. Mm -hmm. Um, I would uh, again, hope, as I've said in prior episodes, I would hope that there's more for her, uh, versus her just being that true supporting secondary character. Uh, I considered watching the episode, I considered that she might get thrown out of that window and be killed. And if so, it was going to be like, all right, well, there was this trauma when she was nine. It took her two years to heal. If we're not going to get more of that, and if this is going to be kind of her trajectory for the rest of the season where I want to help, but I'm scared of you, but I won't tell anybody. Like, if it's going to be that kind of narrative dog chasing its tail, the character won't be as well served as some kind of arc of change. I don't want Frank to kill Billy anymore. I want Krista Dumont to do it. Um, she has her own sins. Let's fully acknowledge she's made mistakes. She continues to harbor this guy. Um, she's increasingly terrorized in her own home. Um, so she's not blameless, but she comes at least initially out of a, a place of good faith. And, you know, much like Billy's, reset button now knowing that uh frank did this to him and and wanting to settle the score um and and his all-around flighty disposition you know one minute cowering the next making plans to to build an army i wonder where he got that idea matt um you know dumont i think the biggest issue is letting him come and go um, not as if she has control over it, but that seems to be when things, you know, have, uh, have gotten out of hand. And now that he's back there with her and, and terrorizing her, I mean, can we blame her for allowing him to leave? Well, I suppose not. And on the topic of blame, it's, I, I think it's interesting that with uh, Sergeant Brett Mahoney, he kind of he can get some blame from us, the audience, both coming and going, which is to say he's not quite fully upholding that justice with a capital J, the, the, the type of justice that uh, Madani talks to him about in terms of trusting the system. I'll mention as a side note, Pete, I know Mahoney has been with us since season one of Daredevil. How interesting that we've reached a point in this show where the the show's representation of the NYPD in these many episodes is a character of color. So not to minimize some of the issues of white police officers and perpetrators of color, but the story has kind of removed that here from any sort of uh, reflection on justice. He's a guy trying to do things by the book, question mark, but then he's also criticizing Madani for not being by the book or for having her own subjective justice or objective beyond that which man has made laws for but kind of which way is it and i'm not saying that he's poorly written it's just what is it is it by the book or is it a higher justice and he's kind of torn every which way and not serving either particularly well thus far it's easy to forget that he made the arrest of frank when daredevil uh first wrapped him up in uh season two there all the way back in 2016 three calendar years ago now matt 
Um, so they have that rapport and that comes back full force and full circle in this episode. But as you indicate that he doesn't want to believe the code that Madani believes Frank has and therefore wants to bring him in, even though it's floated later in the episode, well, maybe if they throw him Billy, he'll let Frank go. I think that some of the wavering that we see with Mahoney is a bit reflective too of wavering in this episode. I don't, I don't think this is the strongest episode that we've seen. Uh, is this as bloaty as, you know, uh, basically all of Iron Fist season one? No, but there is certainly a sense here of I'll talk to you. You talk to me. Let's go talk to someone else. Let's, you know, okay, quick shootout scene in Brooklyn. Now back to, other people talking about different combinations of things about their past, their present, their reflections, their future. And it, it's a slightly flat episode. And I don't know, it's just weird how Mahoney reflects that a bit. And I think coming off the robbery and the chase and then the denouement of putting the story into this new phase and bear in mind, though Pilgrim doesn't, appear in this episode his his shadow lingers that he comes up here and you have to imagine any moment we're going to see him i agree and that's why it's all a bit more puzzling that we have an interesting pilgrim story we have an interesting schultz story behind pilgrim uh and neither of those are in this episode to propel things forward. We kind of have ruminations on where we're at. Uh, yes, Billy's crew gets uh, gets cut down in size, and yes, there's the promise of him creating a new, you know, a new revolution or getting a new crew or or that kind of thing. But you know, it's kind of like I'm I'm fully. I'm fully in on Pilgrim. I wish I knew more about the Schultzes. Maybe we're going to get that in riches in these remaining five episodes, but we couldn't have a little bit here to help move things along. I, I guess not. You know, you can't ask me these questions, Matt, but in Billy's remaining crew here, um, these guys so terrified after he murdered two others, uh, over the bag of cash and now returning with the scraps and shaming them into being members of Billy's army. It was a peculiar scene. It's one that I bought uh, because on the one hand, when uh, when the one no good Nick takes out that pile of cash, I'm like, those hundred dollar bills that's a lot of money even if it's 20s even if it's 10s you know it's a tell nice me pile of you cash. didn't think he was gonna eat a bullet the second he grabbed the cash that you know billy gets the wrong answer and determines it's his bag of money i i definitely bought that billy was willing to walk away from this um after the and, tantrum he threw at dumont's well i oh. yeah but i think that he is he is stable and clear in his moment there and whatever his big potatoes future is you know i think that he's willing to sell them on bravado pete he's willing to sell them on the fact that he can be a good leader despite the fact that he hasn't demonstrated a record to do so and maybe with having demonstrated some bite now he can bark his way into 
the next deal, the next deal, the deal. He's a deal maker, Pete. Pete, what theories does this episode leave you puzzling over? Not so much as theory, but I really kind of hope that Delia gets a, a rationalization and explanation from Curtis that satisfies her, that, that brings Curtis some happiness, man. If there's, if there's a guy we want to see happy, that's not Frank. And let's be honest, Frank's never going to be happy after the unfortunateness he's suffered. Can, can we get Curtis a little happiness? Well, I certainly would hope so. And on a similar vein of happiness, I'm hoping that future episodes bring some happiness for Amy, particularly at the, frankly, I mean, not just rough, but the the overzealous treatment that she receives uh, at the hands of Frank here. Um, Curtis is is right to break that up and to kind of recognize that though Amy has been through so much, she still is a civilian uh, and you know, you can tell her, oh, be ready with the shotgun and things of that sort, but fine, that's just not part of her mindset. Here she is alone, living in a trailer, making, you know, what we can assume is lousy spaghetti. And uh, Pete, I didn't even see any tomato sauce there. It just looked like spaghetti. I saw a little sauce. I saw it looked like a loaf of bread that maybe had been garlicked. So, you know, trying, certainly. But she's still a kid, too. We need to remember that. And though we don't have a, a definitive age on her, we can imagine she's gotten out of high school. Um, consider the fact that she makes this error in judgment. I'm going to you know, hang back, throw the tennis ball, and then attempt to disarm the guy who, who showed me how to do it and nearly pay with her life. I'm glad you mentioned her age, Pete, because I wasn't quite clear on her age. What with the costume department dressing her in a t-shirt, red overalls, and sneakers. Like, we were literally just, all she needed was, like, a Brooklyn Dodgers cap turned backwards <laughs> while she chews, uh, chews gum and, and uh, l listens to the radio or plays with dollies or some kind of kid thing. You know, maybe she, maybe she rides her bike around the yard, something like that. Well, listen, um, after the, the fetishism that took place at the uh, the photography studio where they developed the pictures, um, I think they're wise to, uh, you know, healthily kit it up rather than, you know, the way they had portrayed her for that scene. Absolutely well observed there, Pete. What else is on your theory radar? How blind is... Mahoney and his team when Frank is standing on a girder in a warehouse watching them in open view. Pete, that's the magic, the magic of TV and movies. You get yourself in even Queens Iron or... Fist would duck down there. <laughs> I I mean, look, I think that they went for the cinematic moment. Um Again, Pete, you know, we keep coming up with these little bumps in the road that are easily solved. You you have this legit warehouse space. You have access to it. You're going to put your main actor on the second story, a supporting actor, and a bunch of extras in costumes and police cars and lights and all that. Uh, some blood splatter, some dead bodies, or you know, extras playing dead bodies, whatever it is. You're going to go for this great shot. All you need to do is... All you need to do is show the reverse show uh show mahoney 
just looking around, or Shomahoni, you know, his speech, you know, blah, 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 dead body, this is Anton, and then even just quick look up, if we see him seeing nothing, then there is nothing to be seen, even though we can see the Frank end and it looks a little bit more obvious, but that's all you need is that one reverse shot, and they don't have it, and, you know, the episode is a little weaker for it. But Pete, what else do you have in your file O theories? Let's talk about Krista Dumont's charcuterie. Pete, who does not like a little wine, a little cheese, a little snacky snack, some cold meat after uh, after crossing paths there with Billy Russo? But do tell us more. After a complete and total mental breakdown and barely just getting into the apartment, I really question the setting of this scene in such a way you want to have him on the couch with his head between his legs. And, you know, she's trying to talk him through that'd be one thing she made appetizers, Matt. Uh, Pete, I think that we're zeroing in on kind of similar vague story sins in this episode where, you know, it's just not the strongest of episodes for whatever reason. It's not a major foul that she has all snacky snacks out. It's not a major foul that we have many characters talking about their feelings to each other. At least these things are not fouls on paper, but you put it together. Here it is at the midpoint, give or take, and it's just a little kind of momentum slowing the whole product. An observation lasts from me, Matt, that Billy loses his stuff on uh, Krista during the thunderstorm. And then later we see Frank on the, uh, the hill, the, the picturesque um, cemetery. And there's the thunderstorm going on in the background. Nothing if not uh, really interesting to look at. Yeah, it was a subtle, what I'll assume is addition at the end. Who knows? Maybe they were just uh, lucky and caught all but figurative uh, lightning in a bottle. Um, But yeah, that scene with Billy, I think the lighting that was used to show the thunder was really interesting. It was more than kind of just flash bulb flash. You know, there was kind of some depth to it or some timing or some whatever, some fade out to it. It was really interesting, uh, particularly with the camera being fairly close. And I think that his acting and the way the whole scene was presented made it come off as not this well-worn trope of dramatic things happening during a thunderstorm. It felt organic. It helps that it was intercut with Frank, I believe, walking to the cemetery, walking in the rain, walking in the thunderstorm. And, uh, you know, proof that the episode wasn't all bad, certainly. Pete, with that, let's head to the old mailbag. We have a tweet here from David Dansky that's at Fixed Fun, who says, Pilgrim definitely has shades of Robert Mitchum's fake Bible-quoting preacher from Night of the Hunter. Costume, tattoos, chasing and murdering kids, soft-spoken, and even looks like a short version of the character. So perhaps a bit of a visual quote there from uh, a classic film. Yeah, great observation there in terms of the comparison on Facebook, Matt Stacy Taylor left a comment. She asks, any thoughts about the close-ups on all the ill people in the congregation? She's commenting here on uh, episode 203, Trouble the Water, that one um, with the Schultzes and Pilgrim in the church. It seemed high for the size of the congregation. 
with the wife being ill makes me think it was foreshadowing for a story reveal later in the season. Are these failed experiments or punishments for the less faithful? What do you guys think? I really like her theory there. I guess when I saw that episode, I had read those extras more as kind of scene dressing, which is to say, oh, look, they have brought the ill to be wounded, to be prayed for, that kind of thing, more than necessarily story set up. Uh, I would have actually liked, I mean, I'll speak in the past tense here, although I don't know what happens for the rest of the season. I would have liked if we were getting, I guess that's a, a better tense to put it than full past. But anyhow, if we were getting some sort of story arc of that kind of thing. I mean, we've been told that the Schultzes are bad America, America Inc., trying to buy the election, all those things. If you show us a little bit, I, you know, it's all, it's show, not tell. Um, we may get that, you know, it is five episodes left. It's not two, it's not one, but I kind of don't sense that we're headed back much to Ohio. I mean, we certainly could be. And with the caliber of uh, of uh, Corbin Benson and Annette O'Toole in those Schultz roles, it's more than possible. And uh, and maybe Stacy Taylor there is a Pete. Maybe she's a prophet herself. But we'll see. I think that she has chosen a great story option. Did the brains behind this season uh, keep pace with her smarts? Keeping us on our smarts, Pete, are all the people who visit patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, making sure that we are churning out what hopefully is uh, geeky goodness week in and week out, and uh, they helping support the whole thing by uh, sending a little little cash our way. Not a whole bag, Pete, none of it stolen from a uh, check cashing place, but just enough to help with those uh, bandwidth and storage costs, and that help is always appreciated. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. There's all sorts of levels from there. If you want Matt to pray for you in the Schultz's church, that can be arranged. Don't know what good it'll do, but hey, uh, but certainly thanks as always. And Pete, the best way that you can share your thanks is to talk to good old Pete on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,333 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me a touch of the podcast, comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the PH. Like it today. Pete, we will be back Wednesday talking more Punisher on both the Pop Culture Podcast feed and, of course, the dedicated Punisher Podcast feed. With that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. There's no normal around you. <laughs> <laughs>